Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome to Let's Hear It. Kirk, uh, I'm very excited for you. You conducted an interview. and I did. Th- that's... That's really amazing, man. What was it like? It is. Was it fun? You know, I, let's just be clear. You're the talent around <laughs> here. You're the talent. <laughs> so it was It was nice. I felt like I was stepping into the anchor chair. I felt like I was stepping into the you know, the chair of the venerable late night host. And uh, it was fun. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. And, and I really liked the topic. Um, I reached out to Nina Jankowitz, who is um, at the Wilson Center. She serves I don't think it's called that anymore. The the Woodrow Wilson International Center for yep. for Scholars. So did they change their yep. name? Not just the Princeton oh, one. Oh wait, good question. This is D.C. This is Washington D.C. Oh. I was I was tr- I was tracking that. I haven't seen it change, at least in Nina's um, in Nina's writing. I online. got three words for you. It's going down. <laughs> okay, Probably. so t- tell me about Nina Jankowitz at the uh, soon to be formerly Wilson Center for something. Yeah, it'll it'll be a different center, but I think the topic will be remain the same. She's a disinformation fellow there. She's publishing a book. So think about this, Eric. We get to be breaking news because mm. this book is being published. It's out electronically already, but the hard copy is being published on July 9th. And the title? The t- How to Lose the Information War. It's a very interesting exploration of years of disinformation work being done that has been done in Eastern Europe, led by the Russians. It's very timely given a lot of the conversations we've had about presidential elections in the United States, but also I, I would argue given the broader landscape of what's happening today in the United States, and I think I think she would agree. So it's Nina Jankowitz from the formerly called Wilson Center for International Studies. Okay, well, we'll listen and we'll get back. And all I will say to people who are listening is that Kirk and I will have the conversation about how disinformation applies to nonprofit communications after we listen from uh, to your conversation with Nina. So here we go, Nina Jankowitz. And this week on Let's Hear It, I'm so pleased to be joined by Nina Jankowitz, uh, the Wilson Center, Dis- Dis- uh, 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 let me say this again, Wilson Center Disinformation Fellow. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for spending some time to talk with me about your work today on Let's Hear It. Thank you for having me. So I had a really interesting weekend. I read a really interesting book. It's called How to Lose the Information War. I don't know that I'm ever going to sleep again. Want to tell me a little bit about it? (laughs) Sure. Um, So I read this book because I really wanted Americans and other Westerners to know that we're not the first place to experience disinformation. I feel like in in 2016, um, we kind of had this deer in headlights phenomenon where we really wanted to reinvent the wheel. We, We tended to ignore the fact that Russia and other foreign adversaries have been using the tactics of disinformation and information operations for for many years in the modern era. And of course, in in Russia and its environs, you know, this um, pattern has been going on for decades, right? But that in, the internet makes it a lot more, um, uh, it makes it more potent, I would say. Um, and so I wanted to look at different ways that governments in Central and Eastern Europe have dealt with the threat. Um, and in some cases, they've done it really well. In some cases, they've failed miserably. But I think all of the cases are instructive for the United States, not only in dealing with foreign disinformation, but dealing with the domestic disinformation that we are seeing proliferate right now during 
the coronavirus infodemic, as it's being called, as well as um, the George Floyd protests and the dis and misinformation surrounding them. So right now we're just seeing this uh, real explosion of, of spurious information online. And I think it's really up to our government to start acting, to, to do something about this, and for people to start being a little bit more responsible online. So I hope that this book is a call to arms for those who read it. Well, you know, thank you. You did a little bit of work for me, too, because I was actually going to ask you, um, you've got a very poignant prologue to your book that you added uh, in light of current events as they existed six months ago in the United States. And it's incredible how differently the context feels um, even today. So I was actually going to ask you about that, how, how you, you know, how you feel about the work in, in light of um, events up to this moment. But one of the things I, you, you really start with that word disinformation. And one of the very first things you do in your book is try to establish that word relative to other words we hear, you know, fake news. You even have some words that maybe Facebook uses to describe this category of activities. Tell me a little bit about disinformation as your choice and, and even, um, what that means, because I thought that the way you wrestled with that and the way you kind of wrestled that word to the ground in the book was actually really helpful and really insightful. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I'm glad that you found it helpful. You know, one of the things that I find a little bit frustrating is how kind of cavalier the media and some experts have been about uh, the topic of disinformation since 2016, not only in their coverage of it, but in kind of the um, inaccuracy, I would say, mm. of, of the way that they use the words and throw them around. Um, the subtitle of my book is Russia, Fake News and the Future of Conflict, which I actually uh, pushed back on my publisher a little bit when we were talking through titles on that because uh, I think the, the term fake news itself has all but lost meaning today. Yeah. Um, we see President Trump using it to disparage anything that he feels is politically inconvenient, and that's been replicated by a number of authoritarian leaders around the globe, including the Philippines' Duterte, uh, Yaroslav Kaczynski in Poland, Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, right? The, the, this is a pattern. Um, so fake news isn't well, can, an especially helpful term. Can I jump um, in? Can I jump in sure. on that? Because is it, it, I wonder, and, and again, this is where it gets a little bit tricky, all this, because I start looking around every corner and I, and I find something. So on this corner, I would say, is it a pattern or is it in fact part of the strategy? Like is, is, it, is part of the strategy of undermining our sense that there's disinformation to just lay claim to a phrase like fake news, pump so much uh, emptiness into it that we all kind of step away from that, even those words and say, yeah, the, you, you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, what, what do you, what do you make yeah. of, of that? Uh, well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think uh, the United States still exerts some leadership in the world. So uh, mm. when President Trump does something, it's kind of a it's open season for other leaders to replicate that and not get um, you know, dinged the way we might have done so in the past. Yeah. Uh, but it is also part of, of the strategy, certainly, I think, on President Trump's part and on these other authoritarian leaders' parts um, to to be able to take anything, again, that's politically inconvenient for them and call it fake, because people do know that disinformation and fake news exist in the world. Mm. But back to the terminology, I mean, yeah. so fake news, um, I, I really dislike the term because there is very little disinformation that is a cut and dry fake. Disinformation mm. runs on emotion. It runs on people's real, visceral, authentic reactions to things. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. Um, so my definition of disinformation is, is false or misleading information that is shared uh, with a malign intent. And that's different than misinformation, which would be false or misleading information that is shared without that malign intent. Mm. So that might be your, your grandmother or your crazy Uncle Joe uh, sharing, you know, chain emails and, and strange memes on Facebook, right? Um, that's different than a coordinated campaign used by a state or even a political campaign here in the United States. We've seen that happen uh, several times. Um, that that's a very different intent there, and it's important to draw that line. Um, and I think that's why you know some of the terminology that Facebook and some of the other platforms use to describe disinformation is a bit misleading. They they never want to ascribe intent to something, and they often use the term misinformation as a blanket term. Mm. Uh, but but we know there is malign intent behind a lot of 
these things, whether that is malign intent to, uh, you know, undermine trust in our democratic system or malign intent to defraud people and get rich, like we've seen with some of the health related misinformation uh, and disinformation around the COVID pandemic. So um, it's, it's kind of a minefield, but uh, I think it's important to, to understand where that intent is coming from when we're talking about informa- information operations more, more broadly. You know, malign intent, that's such an interesting way to characterize it. But there's two other elements of that, though, that you really e- explore in your book that I think are so important. And you just mentioned them briefly. One, this, informa- this disinformation activity exploits legitimate and authentic fissures in society that exist anyway. So very often Mm -hmm. it's working relationship with that Two, It can actually, it seems like it's most effective when it's actually working very seamlessly uh, with what I would characterize would be more authentic voices. So, you know, so people that are coming from a particular context that natively, you know, exist in that context, they're part of the citizenry, they're, they're part of the fabric of society but the disinformation campaign is um, is is enlisting them in some way or reinforcing their work in some way. Did I get those parts of the book right, or how would you how would you characterize those pieces of the? Of yeah, the yeah, that's absolutely right, and I think that's one of the big trends that we have to watch out for ahead of twenty twenty. It's something that. I've been, you know, trying to get on my soapbox about um, since 2016 because this has been a trend in in Central and Eastern Europe, which again is is Russia's kind of laboratory for trying out its disinformation tactics um, for many years. So basically, uh, Russia has always exploited the fissures in in you know societies, whether those are ethnic fissures, economic fissures. In the United States, it loves to exploit racial fissures, right? We've seen that over the past couple of weeks, especially. Um, but uh, what what has changed post 2016, as more public awareness is building about foreign disinformation, as the platforms are somewhat begrudgingly starting to respond to to foreign disinformation and domestic disinformation, although even more begrudgingly in that case, mm. um, is is that you know bad actors like Russia have had to change their tactics. So rather than creating um, cut and dry fake personas that they would deploy into Facebook pages and um, across, you know, groups and things like that. What is happening more often than not now is what we call information laundering, where uh, Russia or other bad actors are planting a narrative, um, sometimes in a in a Facebook group or encrypted messaging app. Um, and folks are, are taking that narrative on as their own. Um, and when a, a real American is sharing, you know, a, a spurious link um, with, you know, the intent to inform their fellow Americans, it becomes much more difficult to crack down on that sort of content than content that was just, you know, spread by a troll account that was controlled from St. Petersburg. Um, And sometimes Americans are enlisted unwittingly into these efforts. In my book, I tell the story of uh, a protest group that was supported by Russian ads, and they had no idea they were supported by Russian ads. Ryan Clayton, right? Ryan Clayton makes an appearance early in the book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, and I can go into that story a little bit more if you like, but the, but there are also, you know, folks who are working wittingly with the Russians. We saw, um, just a couple of months ago in March, Facebook took down a, um, a large network of accounts, um, that was targeting audiences in Africa. Um, and basically Russia had enlisted PR firms in Africa to do their dirty work for them, to maintain that air of plausible deniability. And so that there wouldn't be a a link directly back to Russia and accounts based in Russia. So this is happening more and more often and people need to be aware um, that, you know, not only is not everything you read online true, not only is not everyone who they say they are, but but people are getting information from sources that uh, really do not have informing the public at their their best interest. Um, and so we, we all need to start being a little bit more active and vetting the information that we're consuming on a daily basis. So can we parse this a little bit, given the most recent events, which, you know, again, you're writing a book, you have to publish it at some point, And it seems like the pace of the field that you work in moves so quickly that it, it almost feels like trying to contextualize it um, in any moment probably things change so quickly one week almost looks different from the last week but we I, I, di- I didn't see a mention of COVID um, in your book and I didn't see a mention of course of the current Black Lives Matter moment that we're in I, I don't think many of us would debate um, the you know 
horrible tragedy of a senseless murder at the hands of police. I don't think any of us would, many of us would debate systemic racism and the need to address it um, as a as as part of the fabric of our society and 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 to really become much more sophisticated in our understanding of how that works and the role all of us have a play the the role that all of us can play in addressing that but yet as as i saw these protests popping up all over the country and then you know saw even more recently the confederate statues coming down and then i read your book and the chapter focused on estonia it was very hard all of a sudden i i, I was seeing those two things um almost in, a, in an interplay with each other. And I was wondering if, if that was just my mistake because of, you know, reading your book when I read it, or if, if as the writer of the book, you even see aspects of some of those things that were coming out either from any of the countries you were thinking about. But in, in Estonia, I was thinking specifically about the statue that became the focal point for, you know, a lot of seemingly a lot of authentic um, upset. But I, I'm just curious, what have you been seeing around this Black Lives Matter period we've been in since the, 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 the George Floyd murder. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, this is Russia's playbook, right? They take these authentic uh, misgivings in society and, and really try to amplify them as much as possible, because the more that we're looking at the problems at home, which of course deserve our scrutiny and our attention and our, our energy, um, the less we're going to be looking at the stuff that Russia's doing abroad, whether that's adventurism in places like Ukraine and Syria or repressions at home. That's all part of the playbook. So it, it was true in Estonia in 2007, where uh, Russia used the removal of a Soviet statue um, in order to inspire protests and later uh, a cyber attack on Estonia. And it's certainly true today. I think the, the difference, um, unfortunately, is that in Estonia, those those misgivings, of course, were, were based uh, in, in fact and authentic misgivings. You know, the Russian population there felt somewhat disenfranchised. Um, but uh, but Russia did have to add a little bit more fuel to that fire through uh, the Russian language media and things like that. Uh, here, our polarization and um, and response to this issue at a governmental level, federal governmental level, I would say, has added so much polarization and, and kind of animosity to this question that Russia really doesn't have to do much but report on the facts. And I actually would say that uh, based on what I've seen so far, I mean, from overt Russian propaganda outlets like RT and Sputnik, um, they're kind of doing what they do best in, in an ironic way, which is reporting on issues uh, that add to their credibility um, as, quote unquote, you know, trustworthy news. So RT got its start back in the days of Occupy Wall Street and the Occupy movement, many, you know, left leaning uh, activists felt wasn't getting a lot of traction in the mainstream media space. And so RT covered it. And that's how they, in some ways, got their sea legs here in the United States. So when a movement like Black Lives Matter comes up, uh, that's another way that they add to their credibility. And of course, there is a spin on it that helps the Kremlin. But um, in some ways, that that spin uh, is something that activists on both sides of the aisle support. Um, so it might be that, you know, uh, folks shouldn't be removing these statues uh, that would certainly support some on the right. And uh, on the left, you know, we see a lot of criticism that the United States doesn't have grounds to criticize other countries for human rights violations uh, because of the things that have been happening here in the United States over the past few weeks. So, again, adding adding fuel to our uh, pre-existing discord here in the United States um, and trying to denigrate the image of the Western democratic uh, world order. And that's huge for Russia because it wants to get itself back on on the international stage. Um, and I think in, in many ways over the past four years, it has. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Well, let's talk a little bit about that Ryan Clayton. And again, there's so many... Um, 
great vignettes in your book. And uh, even even a question I would have about your decision in, in constructing the book, it seems like building it around stories, really accessible stories, um, was a really crucial part of how you approached it. And I have to say, thank you for that, because it turns it into an incredibly uh, readable and, and just, uh, unfortunately, I have to say, almost fun to read a book, even though the topics are anything but fun to cover, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so, so Ryan Clayton and, and, and you have him here in the book talking about, um, the Russian government is, is, is as much in favor of Rand Paul as they are Bernie Sanders. And that, um, the strategy is if you can weight the sides, you can really pull at the fabric of society. You can pull it apart. You've got Ryan Clayton talking about that in your book. So can, can you, can you tell us a little bit about Ryan Clayton? I, I just, I just love this crazy weird but but awesome vignette about how this how this all works right at right at the front of your right at the front of your book sure so um i in mid-october of 2018 i was coming home from a business trip uh i landed at dulles airport and i had a bunch of emails in my my inbox from reporters and other analysts about um a, an indictment, well, actually a criminal complaint from the Mueller investigation that had just dropped. Um, and it was this criminal complaint that detailed what the Internet Research Agency spent its money on. Uh, they somehow, I guess, through human intelligence or signals intelligence, were able to break in uh, to the IRA's, you know, um, servers and, and get some documentation about their their spending um, and, and also a bunch of emails about how their operations worked on a day to day basis. And one of the things that came to light um, when paired with information that the government got from Facebook was that the Internet Research Agency had spent $80 in ads to support a protest that was a, uh, a flash mob outside of the White House on July 4th, 2017. So this was after the US election. Mm -hmm. uh, and this flash mob got people together who were dressed up in colonial attire to sing songs from the musical Les Miserables, which I'm a musical <laughs> theater nerd, so I just, I loved that detail. And by the um, way, thank you for mentioning that. And the second you you talked about musical theater in your book, you, you had me at hello. My colleague, Eric Brown, we talk about this a lot. We've been doing these different, you know, interviews with people from the sort of nonprofit and foundation communications landscape. And it's, there's a surprising thread of this kind of creativity in the backdrop for many, many people in this field. And so when I saw it in your book, I was like, here we are again. We're right at home. You know, musical theater, take us away. Anyway, go, go ahead. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Well, and, and it was interesting because I, I, you know, read that detail in the complaint and I actually had seen those ads, even though I was living in Ukraine at the time when that protest happened, um, I guess because, you know, theater is in my interests um, in, uh, in, in my Facebook interests, it had sent me that ad. So I remembered seeing that going around um, and I was able to very quickly uh, verify, you know, that the protest indeed happened. It was the one I was thinking of. And I uh, did some, you know, sleuthing and found uh, Ryan Clayton and wrote to him and wanted to see if he had even heard about this. And he didn't. Hmm. Um, he uh, he basically uh, had found out about it from my email to him and was shocked that it had happened. And we had this long conversation. He had a long history in politics on the left-leaning side of things. They it was involved with this group called Americans Take Action, which did creative protests um, around the United States from you know the election on forward. Um, and this was just one of the many protests that they did. And he thought that you know it really uh, those ads really helped him get traction. Um, in uh, in bringing more people out to that protest. So there were a couple hundred people who, who showed up. It was one of the most successful actions that they did. And um, it just goes to show you, I really love this example because a lot of people think, okay, Russia intervened in the election, interfered in the election on behalf of Trump. But actually, it's it's about creating chaos and distrust in the system. Um, and uh, and it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on. Disinformation is about undermining democracy. And it tries to make people throw up their hands and disengage. But democracy doesn't work without that participation, without that engagement. Um, so we really, really need to push back against that. And it, it's incumbent on our political leaders too, again, on both sides of the aisle to recognize that disinformation is uh, is a democratic problem, small d, not not yeah. the party. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a partisan issue. Do we have that documented anywhere? Is there is there is there like an an, an IRA uh, um, you know strategic planning document somewhere that says, hey, this is our strategy, this is how we 
are approaching this. How do we know that this is what they're doing besides the fact that we're seeing it, we're witnessing it in the field? Sure. So so it is laid out um, in some of the documents in the Mueller report mm. um, where, you know, they're talking about the, the strategy for the different uh, units and how they should be um, drilling down on, on these issues. But it's also just... Uh, extremely evident over time when you look at these campaigns and the ways that they um, have have interfered in in other elections and um, other, you know, dicey political moments around the world, not just in Central and Eastern Europe, but we know there's been Russian interference in Venezuela, uh, Central African Republic, certainly um, in, you know, the post-Soviet space, but, but it extends much further than that as well. When I look at Twitter, I look at some other social media platform, what percent of what I'm looking at there is is robots? What percent of it is organized propaganda? What versus what percent of it is what what we would call authentic people having real conversations, real people having real dialogue? Do you have any feeling for that? And and I know there's a fuzzy in between there, which is there's also a version of the real people having real dialogue that are actually completely informed by this otherwise, you know, ferocious set of robotic propagandized, you know, weaponized uh, information streams coming at them all the time. But but what percent of our social media discourse would we say has been infected by this kind of disinformation stuff? Do you have any feeling for that? Or how would you characterize that? You know, Kirk, I wish I could give you a number um, because that would mean that the social media platforms are sharing a lot more data yeah. and being a lot more transparent about what is going on on their platforms. But right now we have to take them at their word. And yeah. I, I don't believe that we should do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, I, Facebook has stats about how many millions of fake accounts they're moving, uh, removing every day. Um, Twitter's been a little bit more transparent about its takedowns, at least related to foreign disinformation. But when it comes to domestic disinformation or stuff that they can't attribute, we still really don't know what action they're taking. And Facebook in particular has been um, really, you know, uh, closed-lipped about this stuff, even its attempts to, uh, to you know, push back um, on, on disinformation. Uh, we only get bits and pieces um, of their releases. You know, they, they have their coordinated and authentic behavior report that they release every month, and we get a few snippets from them. But we don't get the whole picture. And something I've been advocating for for a long time um, would be a kind of museum of disinformation online, mm -hmm. that if you've interacted with something that's been taken down, you can see what was taken down and why, what, what policy it violated, uh, if it was attributed to a foreign government, um, if, you know, if possible, without uh, burning the intelligence methods to figure that out, how, how did they make that decision? How did they make that call? Um, I think that would be really educational for a lot of people because there are still people in this country who don't believe disinformation is a thing. They think it's a hoax. Um, and that is extremely dangerous. And the companies with their near ubiquitous access to millions of Americans' lives can really play a role in, in educating and building awareness. And they've done that to some extent, but I'd like to see them spend much more money uh, and resources and, and really um, think about this in, in, a, in a more activist sort of way, um, which, you know, because of the politicization of this topic in the United States, that's become a dangerous thing to do, but I think it's the right thing to do. If you actually look at Twitter and realize, wow, of this, of this air quotes user base that we're claiming, if 75% of that user base is actually robotic machinations that are intended to reach the other 25%, what does that do for our stock valuation? You know, if, we, if we're, if we're going to actually be explicit about that and, and have we actually minted billionaires in the United States simply because they've been able to roll up user counts because this, this dynamic, you know, they made it so easy, you know, to, to access their platforms. And of course, one of the things that I've heard the folks say, like Jack Dorsey, which, which I'm actually empathetic to is that, you know, for a long time, the purpose for platforms like that was to attract people to use them, not discourage people from using them, you know, so mm -hmm. so they were so they were set up to be very easy to access and use. But yet that becomes an issue today. And, and I wonder if we actually really understood what was going on. Would we say even even the overwhelming majority of, of actual air quotes use in these platforms was reflecting some kind of um, some kind of robotic or propagandized thing? Do you think that's a possibility? So, I mean, I would hesitate to really make it, uh, any strong and fast conclusion without seeing more hard data. Yeah. Um, but, but certainly, I mean, the, the point that you made about the business model um, is, 
is something that's at the core of all of these discussions. And one of the reasons that, um, you know, this is such a difficult problem to solve because of course we want these companies to be successful. Of course they have, you know, the possibility to connect millions of people and they're American companies and we want to continue to uh, support American tech innovation. But the truth is that their, their innovation and, and their, um, uh, you know, responsibility to their shareholders um, is, is getting in the way of democracy on a number of levels, not just here in the United States, but in a, a lot of other countries as well. Um, and at some point, uh, we need to step in as, you know, the, the headquarters of these countries, the place where, the, of these companies, rather, the place where they were developed and, and set a standard for governance of, of social media platforms because it's having repercussions elsewhere. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time in Ukraine in particular, uh, as I've, you know, written in the book and, and elsewhere. Ukraine is in many cases a front line for Russian disinformation and Facebook still only has one person basically dedicated to policy in Ukraine. Um, and there have been a lot of instances where things that have happened in Ukraine have spilled over here. Um, and then, you you know, you have cases like Burma um, and uh, a number of other, India in particular, where um, I think Facebook's negligence has, has led to some really violent repercussions. Um, and I'd like to see whatever regulation we pursue, not only protecting American users, but setting a standard for what Facebook's responsibility is to users um, in other countries as, as well. That has to go beyond the bottom line because these platforms are more than just, you know, messaging platforms or social networks now. They're how people get their news. Uh, they are how people interact and, and connect and how people get information about you know, the key parts of, of democratic participation. And on the one hand, Facebook recognizes that. And on the other hand, they, they still uh, are pursuing solutions that, um, you know, protect their uh, their bottom line. I yeah. think Facebook could still be a, a hugely successful company if, uh, if they were to continue to be a bit more, to keep democratic ideals more at their heart um, rather than pursuing those ads and the bottom line, the business model is the problem. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, um, that's something we're going to have to get around. And the only way out of that is through regulation, I'm afraid. Well, and you have a beautiful piece at the end of your book about what we can do to fix it. And so let's maybe wrap up around the prescription. How do we, how do we address things going forward? Um, and, and, and some of the questions that I was thinking about as I was reading it, it feels like it boils down to who owns your newsfeed, who owns your data, who can profit from your data, and what kind of transparency do we get about how that data is used? Those those felt like really crucial questions to me as I was looking at um, you know what you were what you were bringing to bear. But but what would you say about prescription? How do we how do we clean this up? How do we address this? Well, there's there's a lot that we have to do, unfortunately. I mean, there's there's stuff that's low hanging fruit that Congress hasn't managed to pass because of the partisanship surrounding this issue, including the Honest Ads Act, which would just bring basic transparency to political ads online. The same stuff that you see, you know, in print and on the radio and on TV that has a paid for by that same transparency would be uh, brought to uh, online ads, and we don't have that right now, and it's not enforced, um, you know, transparently or, or equally across the board as it stands. So that's something that's really important and super easy to fix. But as we talked about, a lot of this uh, content, you know, spreads organically without the purchase of a single ad, which means that we really need to invest in education. Um, it's not just on behalf of the platforms; it's it's something that the government needs to invest in more. And I don't just mean media and digital literacy, although clearly we. Need, we need that uh, very strongly. And it's something that, you know, unites all of the examples that I, I talk about in the book that did make some progress against fighting disinformation. They all invest in people. Um, and, you know, it's it's about teaching people, you know, the difference from trolls and bots and, and how to spot content that's uh, preying on your emotions. But it's also about civics and and learning about how to participate in government and make your voice heard in a way that is democratic and and civil. I think too often people are feeling disempowered and we need to empower them again. Um, it's it's 
really important that we begin these generational investments right now because we've already lost several years um, and they take time. But but nations like Finland and uh, and Estonia, even um, as well as Ukraine uh, and uh, several others across Central and Eastern Europe have begun these efforts and they've really um, they've really borne fruit. I mean, these are more resilient societies that recognize that, you know, media manipulation exists, not just on behalf of, of you know, foreign adversaries, but on behalf half of those who uh, have, you know, malign domestic intentions as well. Um, so education is huge for me. Uh, and, and it's something that I think we've not really invested in nearly enough. Um, but public media is another thing that's huge. And, you know, just this week, last week, I guess we had um, the unfortunate firing of a bunch of the directors of services like Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, through the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Um, Trump's uh, appointee, Michael Pack, uh, came in and that was the first thing he did, fire the board and all these directors, including some lifelong Republicans who were heading up these, these uh, you know, media properties that broadcast to places around the world. Um, and we need to, I, I don't believe that the solution to bad information is more information, right? <laughs> we, <laughs> uh, that's not always the case, but we need to be actively pushing back against against disinformation, against, you know, inauthentic content, against um, the manipulation that we're seeing, not only abroad, but here in the United States. So I would love to see not getting these folks fired, but more investment in those properties, as well as things like NPR and PBS. I mean, I looked in the book at uh, just briefly compared the amount of funding that the BBC gets versus PBS. And yeah. uh, it's it's really minuscule. We we in the United States, I think, spend three dollars per person per day on public media. Um, and I forget what the figure is for the BBC, but obviously they spend a lot more. And that's through their TV licenses that all Brits pay. Um, but the difference is that BBC is still the most trusted media in the UK by by a long shot. In a moment of crisis, something like 59% of Brits trust the BBC for their information. And I can't think of a single outlet in the United States that could garner those sorts of stats right yeah, now. And that's yeah. key. It's really important. So, I mean, media, uh, we need to, you know, close the regulatory loopholes that exist now, or at least provide some sort of regulatory framework. And then education, keeping people at the heart um, of our responses to disinformation is key. Because again, disinformation isn't just about playing whack-a-troll and, and taking fake content off the web. It's about uh, closing up the fissures in society that allow us to be manipulated in the first place. Well, Anina, thank you so much for spending so much time with me today. This is really fantastic. So How to Lose the Information War, um, where can people find you and when is the book coming out? How can, how can they get their hands on it? Pretty much anywhere books are sold. So if Amazon <laughs> is your jam, you can get it through there. Um, the ebook is already out, but the hardback will be out on July 9th. And also it's available on IndieBound and Bookshop and all of the things that support your local bookstores during this time. I would encourage you to buy it that way if you're looking for a hardback. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Wikipedia, W-I-C-Z-I-P. E-D-I-A, which is a funny pun on my last name, but you can just search Nina Jankowitz and you'll find me there. And and, and, you, and you could also be found on wikipedia.com, right? Where I yes. found you on the web as well. <laughs> That's great. Well, Nina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk uh, to, with us today and also for taking the time to write this book. It's so important. Um, and I hope that uh, it goes well for you and I hope that you keep up with this work. It's so crucial. And um, I think you're you're making a major contribution with all that you're doing here. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. And we are back with the interviewer, Kirk Brown. And that re I like that that conversation, Kirk, scared the pants off me. I, because I, I mean, it 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 just reminds me of how how much is swirling out there that a I don't have any idea about, and b about the the headwinds that our democracy is currently facing scares the pants off me. Well, I agree. And I, I realized in listening to the interview, I tried to make light of it a little bit, saying I was never going to sleep again. But I think it's actually true in the sense that it reminds you that we're in this borderless world now and this borderless information landscape and things that are happening someplace else, seemingly potentially far away, 
really have implications here. And of course, it appears those strategies are being brought here to the United States as well. I have to say, though, do you think this relates to our audience, nonprofits and foundations? Because I have a take on that, but I'd be curious to hear what your take on it would be. I do. And I was dying for you to ask her that question, Kirk. So um, I failed. You, you, get a, I failed. you get a 10-yard penalty for not asking the obvious question. So instead, we are going to just have to guess Try to dissect about it. this. Yes. But the, what, what I heard from that conversation is that two things. One, there are forces out there that are using American voices to turn us against each other which is horrifying. And the other thing is that if you are doing communications, you are doing it in a sea of disinformation. That's terrifying. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I also wonder, what I, where I wrestled in the conversation, and I loved the story she tells about, and she's just written about it recently in the Washington Monthly, the 4th of July episode she describes where... Um, a number of protesters stand in front of the White House. This is after the 2016 election. They're dressed in American colonial garb and they're singing protest tunes from <laughs> Les Mis. Can you believe, hear the people sing from Les Mis? And I did the interview basically because of that snippet alone. And I thought yeah. that you'd really appreciate it. So hopefully, I, hopefully you did. But this I do, notion I just watched that Hamilton 80- last night. <laughs> Which we we can have another so, conversation about Hamilton some other day, but I just watched that right. uh, on the on Friday night, the third of July. So the question that I I was left thinking about that. So that's crazy weird that we've got information that an eighty dollar ad spend was purchased to uh, amplify that protest in front of the White House. And I want to cut in for a second here. Yeah, I'm going to cut in. I have something to say about this. So this was Please. this was the really amazing thing, which is that the Russians apparently. The, what is it called? The Internet... Internet Research Agency. I, IRA. Research Agency. Mm-hmm. Yes. IRA. Yes. So the Russians paid 80 bucks for an ad to to uh, promote a protest against Donald Trump calling him in the pocket of the Russians. Right. Right. So, <laughs> right. If that's not bank shot, jujitsu, crazy stuff, I do not know what is. Well, it's certainly harrowing. And it makes me wonder sometimes for all of our advocacy work, how much we might see illustrations of this in the background. If this, if the idea is just as simple as I think the way that um, Ryan described it in the book is you push on both, you know, both extremes of society in the middle begins to collapse. But the question that I had for us is, well, any one of us might have paid $80 to get that ad. Any one of us might have done that. So why is that $80 ad spend by somebody that's from an advocacy effort based in the United States, why does that look and feel different to us than if it's being done by IRA? Do you have a feeling about that? Do you have a point of view about that? And, and I think that Nina spoke to this in our interview, so I'll try to represent the way that she would characterize it. But I'm curious if, if you would have a thought about that. So why is it different? I think, I think it has to do with intent. I think that, whatever, in a democracy where people have this right to speak, that's one thing, and it's important to hear a variety of voices. But if some foreign government is attempting to put its thumb on the scale of your own democracy, that scares me. And the fact is that we now are losing the ability to be able to discern between these things, which is another thing that scares me. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And she characterized it that way. She said it was about malign intent. And that, that's, yeah, actually, that's, right. that's the distinction she draws between disinformation versus fake news, which is the, ter- the phraseology that, that she says has gotten too clumsy and it doesn't describe exactly what she's getting to the heart of. I also thought, by the way, one of the reasons that she doesn't like the phraseology fake is that for these strategies to work, you don't work in what is air quotes fake. You actually promote what are actually legitimate, authentic, and real fissures showing up in society. Before we leave, I can't resist the urge to nod to uh, this part of her book where she describes from Estonia years ago, this episode that grew up around Soviet statues in Estonia and a desire to either keep them or remove them and the work that the Soviets did or the Russians did to foment support for keeping old Soviet statues in Estonia. 
And there's an echo of that that I see in this statue controversy that's growing up in the United States. And let's be clear, this, this controversy is focused on Confederate statues and what should be done with them. And it's interesting to me that even as recently as two days ago, the current sitting president of the United States was drawing on similar themes for a national address, pointing to mobs that are trying to take down our nation's monuments and memorials. I don't know if there's any correlation. I don't know if there's any, just anything beyond two coincidences that these things look and feel and sound so similar, but it was striking to me having just read that chapter of her book and then seeing this Confederate statue thing growing up as one of the things growing out of the George Floyd protests. I thought that was really interesting. Well, I I agree. And so much of what we're seeing right now, you're right, is echoed in other places. And part of it reminds me that we have to continue to ask ourselves, what is different this time? And the protests in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's and and, uh, so very many others seem to at this moment be connecting with people on a level that it hadn't before. And I mean, you know, it's a tragedy that it hadn't before. But the question I continue to ask myself is, what, what is it about this moment that is enduring in the context of a sea of disinformation? Because I was listening to, to the, your conversation with Nina. I was thinking, OK, all of these things are absolutely diabolical and nefarious. And yet I still feel like we are achieving something new and we are achieving movement. Do you have any thoughts about why that may be the case? It's it's really interesting to me. Well, because the organic expression of an America that's bending towards justice continues reasserting itself. And so obviously all protest, all authentic expressions of what needs to be rectified, what the path of righteousness looks like, that I would argue continues on irrespective of this of this disinformation overlay that shows up that said you asked earlier and I think it's really fair what does how does this relate to our work with foundations and nonprofit profits and the advocacy work that we do and part of my response to you on that is I want to ask you if you recall if you have any memory of something called climate gate do you have any memory of oh, that yeah, yeah, and what yeah, that yeah, means yeah 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 of course and what was it mr brown the climate gate happened when what was it the um the i which i pcc by pcc thank you the international panel on p and c climate change. on something <laughs> <laughs> intergovernmental panel on climate change yep thank thank you very much they were uh, about to release an important uh, report on climate and in right before that someone hacked into the emails of the University of East Anglia. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. in the UK, and used this used these emails to discredit the report that before it had come out. It completed it made this huge. Let's call it a, a carbon dioxide screen, a smoke screen, <laughs> uh, and and completely undermined the report. Is that the, is that the story? I think that's a fair characterization a, a, with a version. Well, with with two key pieces that the air quotes report was the seminal global analysis from climate scientists about the impact of climate change and what was coming if we didn't um, address carbon pollution in the atmosphere, and the setting around which these emails were being released was the international uh, meeting of the UN that corresponded with the Copenhagen Climate Summit, where we expected to get uh, extreme leadership on this issue from the Obama administration, because we had had this moment where people thought that we were about to take a major step forward. And in the midst of that, instead of this movement towards uh, an even deeper solution, and of course, these are the agreements that the current administration is completely backed away from and is doing everything it can to gut them, um, this, this storm grew up. So Two things I'd say about this in terms of what this means for advocates in, in in our work. So number one, it's hard for me to view disinformation broadly separate from the concept of energy policy globally, you know, because I firmly believe that the main reason, the main reason, the main get you get from disrupting the progress of democracy is slowing the, prog- the, the, the move away from fossil fuels to power the global economy. And the economies that are most behind this disinformation seemingly have that stand the most stand to lose the most as that as that change takes place. Number two, 
I think that any one of our advocacy efforts um, actually could be caught in this kind of a maelstrom. You know, any one of our efforts to advocate for change could see itself at risk because of this kind of a strategy. And it was interesting. I asked Nina about climate gate. It was actually outside of her field of view. So at the, at the very time that this work is happening in, in the, in Eastern Europe, where the Russians are trying out some of these initial strategies on disinformation and using social tactics, they are also trying out seemingly because we don't know. We've never been able to determine who is behind the GRE email, the the the, the East Anglia email hack, and dropping those emails globally. But it looked and played out exactly the same way that the email hack in 2016 targeting the Clinton campaign played out. So we've never proven who did it in the first case, the East Anglia case, but we saw seven years later it, it another reprise of this play out. And so the other piece for me about what all this might mean for nonprofits, advocates, foundations working on change issues is what could we do as a community to actually demand a better set of ethics from the social media platforms that are often partners of progressive campaigns for making change. And so the last piece of this that I would, I would just kind of call for, think about is why can't we as a community basically look at a Facebook, look at a Twitter? Why are we, Nina has a whole uh, game plan for government intervention in this topic that I think makes a lot of sense, but why can't we be reaching out to these entities and demanding that they employ and use a certain code of ethics or a certain code of conduct that would allow us to feel better about how these platforms are being used for public purpose, basically. What do you think about that? Okay, I buy that. I, I And I think it's about 25% of the issue. Yeah. If you think about it. So for, on the one hand, we're being bombarded with all kinds of technology. You know, John Podesta clicked on the wrong link, and there went Hillary Clinton's chances to be president, yeah. sort of. Yeah. So, it, that, so that was one. Obviously, it was the... There were folks like WikiLeaks and others who were interested in in undermining, uh, you know, undermining the the election as well. That's two. Then there are messages that are out there that are undermined by the fact that there are people who are out there trying to to uh, create confusion around them. That's three. There are organizations that aren't clear about their own messaging and strategies and all that other stuff, and that's four. So there's a, all yeah. of these, and if any one of these things happens, then it completely discombobulates the system. So for, and I would say for communicate for communications people, nonprofits, foundations, the first thing is just to know the the circumstances under which your work occurs. That's I mean, just understanding that we are doing communications in a sea of disinformation is important. And then I also think that one of the reasons that this moment is happening is that so many organizations have been doing this work. So this moment, the, the, um, the, the work to support black lives, the work to deal with racism and anti-black racism, that kind of stuff. I think it's because a lot of these organizations have been, have been saying these things and doing this work for a really long time and mm -hmm. that the work is grounded in a connection to people an understanding of justice that they were doing the hard work for a really long time they we whomever doing the hard work for a really long time and that sometimes these moments happen where things it's like brigadoon uh, you know every 17 years or something like that some leprechaun comes you know you you just have to be ready for the moment when it happens. And in the face of all of this madness and disinformation and so many factors out there trying to undermine American society, we are seeing real progress. So this just uh, advocates for continuing to ensure that your messages are grounded in truth and justice and, and love and faith and all of those very positive words and that they ring true. And that there will be moments when in the face of all of this craziness, you can break through. And I, I, I feel that's what's happening. We will see what happens in the next four months. But I, I think that those things are even more powerful than the Internet research agency. Yeah. This is not to say, this is not yeah. to say that Twitter and Facebook and various other folks uh, don't need to be responsible, that we don't need some kind of universal set of ethics, that we don't need better firewalls, that we don't need better protection and secret privacy and all that other stuff. 
We need all that stuff. But that great communications grounded in movements that are legitimate and authentic are essential. I love that. That's, I, my, that's I, my speech. I agree with all of it. I think it's great. Before we go, there's two other things I want to touch on briefly, though. One is, right. and I think this is the most salient question we can ask ourselves, what percent of what we would view social media, so let's just use Twitter as the example, what percent of it is manufactured, fake, or disinformation? What would you say, Eric? Well, Dana didn't know, right? Nobody knows. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you what. Here's what I think. A, I never read comments on news sites, ever, <laughs> ever, because I don't believe them. I don't think, I, it, you know, I just don't do it. I don't care. And on Twitter, I only, I only respond to the people who I know, who I, or I know someone who knows, th- th- in which they have a, a public profile. I know who that person is. That's, those are, that's who I'm, I'm influenced by. So, so that's my own extremely, and I, and I, frankly, I do not look at Facebook. I don't like it. I, it makes me crazy. I'm anti-Facebook. So, so this is fair that's because that. that's a good that's a good statement of the personal hygiene you exercise in the face of all this. That's great. Right. But I feel like not knowing <laughs> that the answer to that <laughs> question, already. not knowing this percentage question is a little bit like me handing you something that looks like a cup of coffee and we know there's some level of toxicity in it, but we don't know how much <laughs> and it I'm going to ask you to drink it. I'm going to ask you to drink it. Right. And, and, but the other thing, and Anita talked about this too, and I love this analogy. I, I think it's really fair to say that our use of social media today is a little bit like when we started driving cars going fast <laughs> and lacked things like seat belts, certainly didn't have airbags. Maybe not, maybe we didn't even have, you know, speed limits or even line, you know, marking lane markings on the road. Or or driver's licenses. <laughs> or licenses. So there's a real fundamental piece of this that just needs to get cleaned up. And then the last thing that I was going to, I was just reflecting on this because you and I work around and probably know a lot of people in these different entities. And I have yet to meet um, a horrible sociopath amongst any of them. You know, and I think that for many, many years we would have, have viewed this new technology. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Kirk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I would argue that many of us would probably think that many people in these uh, tech, major tech companies align pretty deeply with things that we would call progressive values. At least that's been, been my experience too. One of the things that I wonder about what might be going on in the background here is that there's such a business case to be made for attracting as much ad revenue as you can and to allow it to be segmented so carefully that there's almost like this is this is capitalist democracy starting to eat itself a little bit. One of the things I wonder about all of these companies is should they actually reposition themselves as B corporations so that they could make a more explicit commitment to public purpose uh, principles when they do their work? And I, I bet if that was ever a decision that they were going to make, that would that would provoke some pretty substantial shareholder debate about you know, all of the pension funds that are wrapped up in these companies now and things like that. So I don't know. I think that there's a really interesting thing just around the business case for these companies and how potentially that needs to be cleaned up as much as anything else. What do you think about that? Well, or just make them uh, public utilities and regulate them like that. Yeah. I know that's, that's uh, someone will uh, do me in, in my bed if I, for saying such a thing, but <laughs> you know, we used to have that. We used to have AT&T yeah. and uh, it was regulated. It was the thing that carried information yeah I don't know. yeah fcc uh, regulated our airwaves for a really long time until it decided not to so i i think that those i don't know it's all up for debate but the idea is at least i, I do believe in the idea that we need to all have be well educated understanding that that's kind of crazy no one's going to do that well, this is Nina's pitch. So Nina, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to write this book, to talk with me about it, um, How to Lose the Information War. It's coming out July 9th. She had some great suggestions for how you could buy the hard copy of the book if you want to in a way that also supports your local booksellers. And it's also out as, a, as an ebook and it, it's eminently readable. She did an excellent job wrapping the book around very easy to digest stories and, and that alone warrants our... Praise nominally is a podcast that's about public interest communications. So I'm just, Nina, thank you so much. That was a really interesting and gratifying conversation. And thank you, Kirk, for conducting an excellent interview. Well, congratulations. Happy to do my part.
<laughs> and we'll see you all next next time on Let's Hear It. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. Hey, wait, I'm sorry, Eric. I've, I've got to cut you off. We have to pause for a second. My cat is starting to go crazy in front of me. I got to move him. Sorry. Give me a second. <laughs>